best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for uh, February's installment of Beer with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, our first podcast of 2014. We're really happy that you could join us. Uh, this is a podcast, for those of you who are new to uh, the series, it's a podcast that features the ideas, philosophies, research of Blue Marble Space Institute of Science members and friends. And so today we're very happy to be joined by uh, Dr. Margaret Race from the SETI Institute. Uh, she's going to tell us about some of her work in thinking about planetary protection, outer space exploration treaties, and what this means for some of the uh, proposed and ongoing space exploration issues that we've been hearing about. Before we begin, Dr. Armando Azubustos is going to introduce us to one of his favorite beverages. And keep in mind, before passing this off to Armando, obey your local laws and only drink alcoholic beverages <laughs> if you are of the proper age. Armando, please. Yeah, hello. Yes, uh, since uh, Dr. Race is involved in um, planetary protection, I chose this uh, very interesting one that I knew that in six I haven't been able to drink it yet. But you see, uh, this uh, Norwich-born uh, British astronomer and winemaker released a Cabernet Sauvignon called, called Meteorito, which is in English is meteorite. And it was aged with a 4.5 billion years old meteorite believed to be from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. This uh, extraterrestrial one, you, you would say, was created at the Hatchon's Tremonte Vineyard in the Cachapoal Valley in Chile. And the, the meteorite belonging to an American collector, it is thought to have uh, arrived uh, into the Atacama Desert about 6,000 years ago. So in 2010, uh, this uh, guy uh, collected uh, the Cabernet Sauvignon grapes uh, from his vineyard. The fruits were fermented for 25 days before undergoing malolactic fermentation for 12 months in a in French oak barrel. In, and in that period, they put this meteorite in, and it blended uh, with the wine. So it's a kind of a, a, a unique wine. Uh, wine they made about 10,000 liters, and they are still some bottles of wine. I couldn't bought one because you have to get out of town. You can see it. You can see it here, you can see the bottle of wine and the meteorite. And I guess it's so interesting, maybe too cool or maybe too nerd, I don't know. But I think I'm going to get a bottle of this this weekend. So I think it's for someone working in planetary protection and, and the discovery of extraterrestrial life and the policy implication of space exploration, this is kind of the perfect wine for the situation. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Now, are you going to taste it too? Well, yes, I, 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 I was so intrigued that I'm going to get some bottles. You have to get out of the city. It's about a hundred kilometers, about an hour trip from where I live, where I live. So if anyone else is interested, <laughs> send me an oh, email. Oh yes, Armando, I need a bottle of that, at least a bottle. Maybe you should buy a case and you can yes. bring it to another meeting. Sure. Yes, you can pay your travel by selling bottles of wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is perfect because I was thinking, well, beer is nice, but I generally don't drink beer. I'm a wine drinker. You know, I live in California, drink mm -hmm. Chilean, South American wines, and uh, South African, Italian, all of it. So this is great. Good. Okay. So thank you very much for the introduction and the wine. 
Okay, all right. So um, when Jacob asked me to do this, I wasn't quite sure which topic to do, but a lot has happened recently, and I thought it would be good to talk to people about what kinds of things are coming up in astrobiology, especially since we're in the middle of a road mapping process. And as we look ahead, we tend to think, as groups of scientists do, that we think about exploration and activities and search for extraterrestrial life and how do meteorites get here on Earth and how do planets form and what is habitable and all that. And as we do all of that work, we're guided by the Outer Space Treaty, and we've done a very good job of that for five decades. Well, in the past decade, you've probably heard a lot about commercial folks getting involved as well. And they have other plans, and they don't think about some of the things that, that we scientists might think about. So I thought it would be good to just talk about the kinds of issues that are coming up as we merge. We've been on essentially divided roads for some number of years. And actually, if you look at the Outer Space Treaty, which guides space exploration of all sorts, it was signed in 1967, so it's 50 years, basically. And in low Earth orbit, geostationary orbit, there's lots of stakeholders and lots of different legal issues. Just to name a few, there's questions of liability, harmful interfer interference, ownership of assets. If you launch it, you own it. Um, rescue and mutual aid if something goes wrong with astronauts. Um, access to communications frequencies, access to orbital assets satellites, remote sensing, and the list goes on. Launch licenses, and there's a lot going on with FAA on that now. But if you notice, there is no planetary protection, because we know there are microbes up in space. When we send up the ISS, the astronauts bring all their microbes with them, and they go for a ride. So there's no need for planetary protection. Um, those would just be biomedical concerns as, we, uh, as how microbes might affect the astronauts. But if you look at the moon and other celestial bodies, only people who have had access to that are scientists and governments. And even on the Apollo mission, there was active planetary protection. It wasn't effective now, we know, but they did the best they could way back in the 60s and 70s. So as, as others are starting to think about going from Earth orbit up onto the moon or asteroids or Mars, they're um, probably even unaware of planetary protection, or even if they've heard of it, they probably don't know how it applies to them. So where I'm looking at is how do you prepare for that merge that's going to come up? We've had two separate dual implementations of the Outer Space Treaty, and now we're coming up to a point where we have to say, wow, what do we do? And just to give you a sense of how fast things are changing, we've got new governments coming in who are becoming space partners, this commercial and private groups. There's proposals for things like asteroid mining and in-situ resource utilization, tourism, and astro-burials, believe it or not. Delivery of packages like a FedEx-type system will take you up there and drop off your instrument. There's prize competitions like the Google Lunar X Prize to land a um, privately funded spacecraft on the moon, row for 500 meters and send back data. And um, that's worth a $20 million prize and an additional bonus of $5 million if you go and somehow document a human heritage site, something like the Apollo uh, sites. And the anthropologists and historians got quite upset with that, saying, my goodness, that means you could have people rolling over the footprints or breaking off pieces of the Apollo module or damaging actual working instruments that are still up there, seismometers and such. We also have people talking about human settlement. So, for instance, Mars One is talking about one-way missions and settlements on Mars. One-way missions, mind you. 
so each opportunity, once they got the, um, the settlement, uh, the colony built uh, robotically, they could start bringing four people at a time every two years. Beside that, on the left, you can see Golden Spike. That's going to be kind of a taxi service. We'll bring you up there if you just pay us the transportation fee. Um, we've got things like asteroid mining, the idea that you go to an asteroid, you can take the resources and use it, maybe move them closer to, to the moon and uh, have access to bringing back gold or platinum or whatever you want or make fuels out there. And you even have things like strip mining on the moon or other places or fuel depots. So these things have to do with activities and uses. They are not just science like we're used to. When we talk about drilling, we're talking about drilling to collect a sample, and it's very small. So we're at a crossroads of sorts, and the new stakeholders have diverse activities of different scales and in different times. And the question is, how do you balance exploration and use? And the Outer Space Treaty is different than, say, the Antarctic Treaty, another international treaty. That international treaty says that Antarctica is a preserve for scientific uses. But Outer Space Treaty says that Outer space is for the peaceful uses of mankind, humankind, and that it is um, for exploration and use. Well, we've done a lot of exploration and use in low Earth and geostationary orbit, but on the moon and beyond, we've only done exploration. So we're like the scientists sitting in a little sandbox, playing with our buddies and being nice and doing planetary protection. And here come all these guys with their dump truck dump trucks and land movers and all sorts of ideas about disturbing the surface, building things, moving around. And the question is, what do you do about that? How will that affect the science? And how do you develop policies that would think about the science, think about other uses, think about impact on environments? And there is no mention in the Outer Space Treaty about how to utilize resources or share things or manage the environment. There's no code of conduct that's been accepted. There's no equivalent of environmental impact assessments or review process. These are international areas with no sovereignty. So no one nation can stand up and do things. And here's another one that we all have to deal with. There's no oversight or enforcement. If someone's already done something on the moon, I don't know about it. I'm not up there watching it. I don't have a police force up there. So the question is, how do you take all of these things and start to think about managing and developing policies? And while the scientists are working on the questions of what science to fund, there are people out there already proposing different activities. So a senator in the U.S. Senate proposed that we develop the Apollo sites as U.S. national parks. NASA, at the receiving questions from the Google Lunar X Prize people, developed a set of documents that are guidelines for how to approach these historical sites on the moon. They address questions like, okay, is a footprint, that iconic footprint of the first footprint on the moon, is that footprint an asset, is an artifact? Is it something that's ownable? If they put a circle around a landing site and say, don't go in it, is that appropriate? They may own the, the asset, the hardware that's landed there, but how can they say, don't come into that circle that I'm drawing around it? So we, we talked about a lot of things, and they actually had a workshop series and came out with what I think is a very good set of guidelines, but they're guidelines only. There's no legal enforcement, and it means that if you're going to do it that way, you'll take on each and every proposal at a time and try to develop a guideline, and that's not a good way to do it um, when you start to talk about many people coming up. Earlier on, some scientists suggest 
maybe we should set aside pristine wilderness areas. Well, how do you define a wilderness area on the moon, which is a rock? How do you think about environments when all environments here on Earth are ecosystems with biogeochemical cycling of some sort? Up on the moon, it's a rock. Asteroids, a rock. What are natural processes up there, and what is, quote, sustainability that you might be affecting? So we've got a lot of issues to talk about, and the Coast Bar panel on planetary exploration pulled together a workshop. Uh, Pascal Aaron Freund, among others, were the people who pulled it together. That was back at George Washington University Space Policy Institute in 2012. They began saying, what kind of things do we need to set the stage for future work on these issues? And we need to clarify a lot of things, even definitions. What is harmful contamination? What is an environment that needs protecting? What is, quote, reasonable or practical? What is, quote, harmful contamination? What timelines are we talking about? And if someone, if a scientist drills into the subsurface, is that okay, but not for a miner? If a scientist wants to bring back a little piece of a lunar module because it's been sitting up there in space weathering conditions for 40 years and we have pristine materials in Earth storage, that would be an interesting comparison to have that material brought back. So you're talking about breaking off a piece of a lunar module and bringing it back. How is that different from someone breaking off a piece and bringing it back and putting it on eBay? Sort of the difference between burning a flag is the respectful way to um, end a, a used flag's life cycle. But burning a flag is also a very powerful symbol. So this, the activity is the same, burning, but the message is something completely different. So we've got all of these things, and what does it mean to be stewards of the environment and to do responsible activities? So we're trying to look at how do you engage everybody to talk about this? How do you even establish a database of what environments are up there? Um, we didn't just proclaim national parks. We went out there and studied and saw and knew what it was that we were going to save um, or uh, control. So how do you start to think about these things? And when the lawyers get into it, they don't even think about some of these things. So the International Institute of Space Law thinks much more like commerce and commercial. And they're only, I'd say, kind of free recently getting into the idea of planetary protection. So the questions for me are, um, how do you develop a systematic overview of what's at stake? And how do we get scientists and international organizations, that's governments, lawyers, diplomats, uh, commercial folks, all working together? Um, and that's where I, uh, I'm sort of stuck because uh, obviously this goes through the UN and there's very, very heady geopolitical processes involved and it's the Department of State that works with the UN and the General Assembly and the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So the question is, what kind of scientific input can we do? What kind of things do we need to think about now so that we can perhaps provide input that is useful when the time comes? Do we build on models that we have here on Earth? How do we change to adapt for situations that are in space? And so for me, I think a part of even just talking about this is to get astrobiology scientists to become aware of the fact that it's not just science. There are other players in the game, and they have a legitimate right to be in that game. Science may or may not be able to answer some of the questions, especially if, say, we discover life on Mars. What does it mean if we have microbes on Mars? Does Mars belong to Martians? We treat microbes pretty poorly here. We brush our teeth, we use antibiotics, and we're out to kill them, um, even though we have great respect for life. So what does it mean if it's different on Mars? 
And how do the other stakeholders who maybe have money and power and access to bigger things, how do they get into the game? My concern is that, you know, at the end, if you're not careful, the scientists will keep saying things like, be careful, be careful, and the, the larger activities just go forward because of national, financial, or even geopolitical concerns. So it's an interesting mix of real-world problems. It uh, needs outside-the-box thinking and new understanding, scientifically and otherwise. And there's no real governmental process that exists right now. So how do we deal with that? So it's definitely, we're in astrobiology, we are definitely something that is a group of people that are multidisciplinary, and we pride ourselves in working across the disciplinary lines. But this is something that I would say is interdisciplinary. It requires all that multidisciplinarity, but then looking outside of our typical box and asking interdisciplinary, international, and intergenerational issues. We've got something brand new. And for me, it's a way of thinking about this earth as well and thinking about life. What do you want to talk about? How do we even start to do this? Because when you bring it up, a lot of the lawyers roll their eyes. It's something that's much, much bigger. The uh, commercial folks are putting up a lot of money, and they don't want to hear, don't let me do it, because you're originally just starting out small scale. So how do we, how do we get our concerns to the table when things are um, starting to be discussed? Or how do we even get the discussions started? That's what I would like to talk about. So, Margaret, are the results of the workshop that happened at GWU last year, were they pushed to the Department of State? Or were they presented at COPUOS? Or are they just a volume stored somewhere? A little bit of all. Um, so, there was a Department of State person at the meeting. There were commercial people at the meeting, including Mars One. So, we talked about a wide variety of issues. There was a report published that came out of that. The reports are typically reported to COSPAR. So this, I think that was 2012. So that one would be reported this summer, 2014, as we go to Moscow. That's reported to the COSPAR Bureau. And then that bureau will take the information and report it to the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. But honestly, as they're looking right now, so it's another report that sits there, but it's a good one. But in the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is looking at the long-term sustainability of space activities. And if you look at all the things they're looking at, they're all Earth-focused. So it's how do you think, how do you get developing nations involved? How do you think about resource management from space, satellite uh, storm and disaster planning? How do you make sure that the military isn't involved in ways they shouldn't be? And there's a little bit of work uh, comment about planetary protection, but by and large, they're not paying attention to it at all. Did you want to mention what COSPAR is and how it is set up and what it's supposed oh, to do? Oh, yes, yes. COSPAR is the Committee on Space Research. And believe it or not, I, I was pretty shocked only just several years ago to find out that it's only a non-governmental organization. It's a scientific group. It's almost like a, um, a gentleman's club, I'll say. You know, the scientific agencies come together and talk about space and do responsible space exploration. And again, this is the scientific part. So most of it is looking at, oh, technology and science. And they report into the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And then that group reports into the General Assembly. So all of this is done by self-governance. There's no, um, nothing firm. 
Um, interesting with the asteroid initiative, the one on the harmful asteroids, this is different on using asteroids as resources, but the harmful asteroids, over the past 10 years, the scientists and the astronauts have moved the topic of harmful asteroids lightning fast, if you ask me, from the point of surveying and finding what's out there and thinking about how we're going to possibly begin to think about deflecting potentially harmful ones. And they developed a proposal for an asteroid warning network that would that would report into the General Assembly and also a space management um, mission planning for deflections. So what they've done is already set up the infrastructure. They don't have any criteria on what they're going to do, so they're at the very first step. But they did that in about five, six years. So that's a different one. That one would be an action, an international action of launching a nation to deflect an asteroid. But everything else is individual activities coming to your national space agency. And I should say, too, that the Outer Space Treaty says that when a nation is a signatory to it, that then the signing nation, in our case the U.S., makes sure that its activities are in, consistent with the Outer Space Treaty, which also, and it specifically says, it applies to government and non-government ent entities. So that means our government, which has said NASA is the agency that worries about Outer Space Treaty, our government needs to make sure that commercial groups are also doing the right thing, and there are no guidelines right now. But the UN only operates on a governmental level, right? Whereas That's correct. All, the, all, these gov all these companies that you mentioned pride themselves on not being governmental and still go to space. So it seems like th this proposal for planetary protection should go to like a trade organization as opposed to a governmental one. That ah, those organizations. Yeah, I've started to work a little bit on that. So planetary protection is actually a very specific thing. And what I'm talking about on some of these is actually not planetary protection. Planetary protection is in um, Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty that says you avoid, quote, harmful contamination while you're doing work, uh, exploration of outer space. And harmful contamination, that's sort of like saying, thou shalt have clean air. Well, what does that mean? Or clean water. And so you take that term and use science to decide what the criteria are. And there's lots of discussion. Is it swimmable water, fishable water, drinkable water? on and on and on. So planetary protection, as it is now implemented, applies to space exploration. Any nation that's going up there to do exploration, basically you do good science, you don't contaminate, and you don't do things that would negatively affect our search for extraterrestrial life. Basically it's you do good science, I do good science, I don't touch your science, you don't touch my science. So it has nothing to do yet with commercial. So when these commercial people are talking about it, you can see that sign, for sale. Some of them are talking, I can claim it. You can't stop me. I can use it. If I'm going to go up and mine something, I need to have a claim. I don't have to own that piece of property, but I want a claim. I want a right to use that. I want a right to mine that asteroid. Who gives them that? We don't have a process for that right now. So planetary protection is one specific thing that applies right now only to space exploration and science. So one thing I was wondering along those lines is, um, I mean, how many nations have not signed the Outer Space Treaty, and could, you know, a multinational corporation just, you know, cleverly position its assets so that they're not subject to a treaty, and then if they decide to claim ownership or establish a settlement or, you know, take an asteroid for themselves, 
they're not really violating anything because they're acting under the laws of the country that's not signed the Interstate Treaty. Is that a possibility? That is, and that often comes up. So early on in genetic engineering discussions, the U.S. did have some concerns about genetic engineering, and people were saying, well, gee, a researcher could go to Chile or Spain or someplace that didn't have a law or concern about genetic engineering and do that same experiment and be legal. And that is true. But generally, people don't want to do that. Right now, over a hundred countries are signatories um, of the Outer Space Treaty. In the world, there's a little over 200 countries. So once you get up over half, I'm told that the lawyers consider that uh, basically soft law. It's everybody agrees. All the big the big guys are in it. So, uh, but that also makes it difficult because it means everybody has a voice. And so even if the U.S. and Russia and JAXA and uh, ESA want to do something, you know, maybe Bolivia could stand up and say, "Hey, wait a minute, we don't want you." And so. Uh, so the commercial folks could easily go and launch from the middle of the ocean. It's international waters. Margaret, have all of the um, countries with space launch capabilities signed? Yes, uh, but interestingly they have not for the Moon Treaty. So the Moon Treaty came along, so we're signatories of the Outer Space Treaty. The Moon Treaty came along after Apollo and the idea was put forth actually, I believe, by the U.S that wouldn't it be nice to have something like this, all this good general international cooperation as we go forward to the moon. And what they did is said that everybody who should agree with this, and they said we will have an international organization that thinks about it, and oh, by the way, if you, that the entire world should benefit from anything up there. So that became the notion that if you went up there and mined something and made a lot of money, you would have to somehow distribute some of the proceeds of that back to other countries on Earth. So the U.S. didn't even sign it, and neither did any of the major space agencies. So it was had, it's been signed and ratified by some number of countries, but none of them are major space-bearing countries. We're in a legal limbo, and we tend to think of science as calling the shots, but for the life of me, I'm not sure how it sometimes works. So anyway, as a scientist, I think about um, overuse of water or pollution of air or assets like that that are involved in biogeochemical processes that things, you know, grow up again or you get seasonal changes. And I don't quite know how you apply some of those definitions and standards to a place like the moon. What are natural processes on the moon? Asteroid, right? It's a rock. And I think some of the societal questions will come up and be bigger. So, for instance, on asteroids, people talk about going up there and getting gold and platinum, but Imagine if someone brought back gold and collapsed the entire world's gold market on Earth. That's an interesting one. Nobody has brought that one up. I was just starting thinking, this is a lot like, you know, the mortgage crisis or something, or anything where you have, you start to fool around with supply and demand. The scale of the mining from space that would be required to do that is quite a bit more than anything planetary resources or any current group is planning. Mm -hmm. uh, something in the long term, I can understand. That's right. So part of what I'm thinking about, how do you start the discussions now when we're talking decades from now? So when the Wright brothers were flying, or even when the first jet was made, never mind propeller planes, just the first jet, nobody could have envisioned the Dreamliner, the Airbus 380 with 500 seats. You know, So these kinds of things might happen, but it will be decades. But how do you build that procedural and other infrastructure so it adapts? And to, the Outer Space Treaty is impressive. For 50 years, it's worked. 
And now we're at a point where we've got to do some revisions. You don't want to get rid of the treaty because it's really a um, geopolitical treaty that is a way of saying, let's stop the Cold War. That's what it did. Science is kind of a surrogate in there. So we have a, a comment from Gavriel. She just wanted to give her opinion that the international laws for the sea, from general perspective, seem to have much more broader capabilities and certain degrees of freedom to initiate further engagement to these topics. So maybe you could comment on that a little bit. Yes. Um, I looked first at Antarctica because it had environmental impact statements. It had um, conflict between the U.S. and Russia. It was set up about the same time as the Outer Space Treaty, and it had a 50-year anniversary. So I looked at that first, and there's a lot of comparisons. Then I realized, well, but, you know, it's not a U.N. treaty. It's actually a scientist treaty. Countries that are, they use science as a way of, again, stopping the Cold War. And then I started to look at the Law of the Sea Treaty, which has had many, many um, iterations. And Law of the Sea has several approaches with lots of definitions. So the first three miles is your territorial water, and the next 200 is your exclusive economic zone, and then the only truly international spaces are the seabeds. And um, so the U.S. was one of the leaders in getting the Law of the Sea Convention started up again, and we're still not a signatory to it. We adhere to it, but we don't sign it in part because they did the same thing with the Moon Treaty. They set up an international organization that's supposed to share everything, and the U.S. said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. So... It's, it's, so the science is only going to give you part of the answers. And apparently right now the, the mining of the seabed is still an issue. So there are companies that want to go down and mine some of the chimneys at the uh, deep ocean vents. Because if you break off a chimney, you've got <laughs> you know fresh minerals all nicely concentrated for you in one place. And you can bring it up. But then the, uh, the scientists are saying, whoa, 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 what does that do for the habitat and the uh, um, unique assemblage of organisms that are down there? And so they're going back and forth. So it's some of the same issues. So I did write a paper with Pascal Ehrenfreund and a student intern who was from GWU. And we just, it came out in New Space. And it looked at how do you do this balancing. And we analyzed the Outer Space Treaty, the Antarctic Treaty, and the um, Law of the Sea. And those are the only three resources that we have that are truly international. So we were looking at the pieces of each. So there's a lot to be said for Law of the Sea, but there's a lot of drawbacks, too. Seth, you had a comment for Margaret. Hi, Margaret. This is uh, Seth Baum. Hi. Um, thanks, thanks for bringing up all these issues. Very good discussion. I just wanted to chime on to some of the uh, points that were being made about international law. I think this is consistent with, with what you've been saying. My impression is we shouldn't be too worried if we face a situation in which not all countries are party to the law, or uh, if not all parts of the world, like the, you know, the, the open seas or something, are, are, are party to the law, because an international law will do more than just create some sort of legally binding mechanism for the people or the, the entities that are party to it. It also creates a, a fairly strong international norm that the international community can use to try and compel even countries' areas that aren't party to it to comply with it. And, and likewise, we often see countries don't sign or don't ratify the treaty, but still are uh, in, in compliance with it. The United States does this a lot. It's, uh, it's actually very hard to get the United States to ratify a treaty, but uh, quite often we just end up being in, in compliance with it anyways. And so I think an international treaty process for the, the exploration and, and use of outer space could be very successful in 
establishing norms that it's expected that everybody around the world will follow and that it could succeed in actually uh, realizing those norms even if there are some countries or some parts of the world that aren't party to the, the treaty. It's exactly right. And so the question is, what can we as scientists and astrobiologists do to start this process? What it amounts to is agreeing that you'll do self-governance. It isn't just a matter of self-governance or I got here first. It's a matter of deciding what is, quote, responsible activity. And one assumes that science fits into that somehow. So that's where I'm looking. How, how is the way to contribute forward? Is it writing a report and getting it submitted and approved by some international body? That's actually not a minor step as far as I'm concerned. That's about all it seems we can start to do. Get all this information and this literature together. And that's why we have tried to do the astrobiology um, societal focus group, to just start pulling all of this together. Because these questions that people are asking, whether they're ethicists or economists or social scientists of different sorts, they are legitimate questions. And they make us think not only about astrobiology and activities off Earth, but they also make us think about activities here on Earth, synthetic biology, geoengineering, nanotechnology, artificial life and robotics. All of those questions are coming up, and we want to think about how to frame them in ways that we can all agree to. Margaret, this is, this is Jen. I, mm-hmm. I really um, appreciate how articulate you are when you discuss these issues. Um, I thought your point about actually maybe forming partnerships with other um, disciplines that have sort of regular, similar regulatory issues like like you mentioned, um, genetic engineering or, you know, bioengineering or something, that might be an interesting avenue to pursue in more detail. Um, Mm -hmm. I've heard more about the Antarctica, that a lot of the seas, the um, environmental monitoring, but I like the fact that you've raised up these other other areas too. And I wondered, is there any international community for that kind of, I guess, looking for commonality between these different areas that could benefit from... (laughs) self-policing, but that's, you know, but um, at the same time recognize what a difficult challenge that is? I think there are people talking about it. Certainly the lawyers and uh, the policymakers, the diplomats, do talk about these things. I mean, there's only so many ways you you can write policy. You can incentivize people, you can penalize people, you can make a police force, all of those things, you know. So a lot of it is... um, kind of a self-governance. We all file taxes at, uh, in April because we're told to, and then it's sort of like, well, come, come and get me if I don't. And it may take a while, but they'll come and get you. So there's sort of a combination of penalty as well as uh, um, responsible uh, activity. So you, there's only so many ways you can do that, and so we can look at patterns like that and see how they have worked. So I'd say that the International Institute of Space Law is definitely thinking that way. And one of the things that I've been doing over the past several years is to try to introduce to them the ways that outer space environments, not outer space in Earth orbit, outer space environments are different. And how would it apply? And who's getting licenses and things like that. So it turns out right now, NASA is the civilian space agency, and we do have authority for the research that, that we're doing, and the civilian space agencies and the interactions with space station and astronauts and things like that. But it turns out also that now as we're talking commercial in there, our Congress designated FAA as the agency that's responsible for commercial activities in space and definitions of where airspace stops and space begins. 
So FAA is giving licenses. They give you a launch license. They can tell you where to launch and where not to go through with your rocket, but they don't tell you what to do when you get up there. So right now, there's kind of a limbo between FAA and NASA. So uh, there, there's a lot of discussions between FAA and NASA and Department of State. So those things happen behind the scenes in their official discussions, which if you're not a federal agent, you're not involved in. So I've been looking at those places where I can somehow bring this information to, to light so that scientists don't think of this as just PR or think of it as, you know, all the damn public. We know what we're doing. It's way bigger than that. And I think that once they get involved in it, they do understand and appreciate it. So that's why I think um, Sanjoy and Jen, that sometimes just writing a good document and getting it out there and getting it discussed is the first step. Yeah, I agree. Would it help also if I provided you with copies of these couple papers? That would be they... great. Okay. Margaret, do you have plans for another current, I guess, or updated report at Coast Bar this, this summer? I should have mentioned one of the things that I'm working on is the IAA, International Academy of Astronautics, has a, um, a paper that's come along, and they have suggested the need for study to look at planetary protection and how it would apply to broader audiences. So there's right now a big study on planetary protection and human missions. And part of what we've already reported it to a uh, international heads of agencies uh, project that was done in January. And the idea is to get partnerships involved, get international agencies involved and others. And so those reports will be the kind of thing that will be available as well. So it sounds like there might be like additional political infrastructure needed to really manage our outer space environment properly. Oh, that's for sure. And all I wanted to do is say to the scientists, you know, you're going to be playing happily in your sandbox with a bunch of other scientists, and everything is going nicely. And if you don't look back over your shoulder, you won't notice the bulldozer coming. I think that's a great, actually, take-home message. I mean, I think even for people who aren't directly involved in space science, I mean, I think more and more just paying attention to the societal impact of our science and especially the impact of society on our science yes. uh, is more and more uh, prevalent. Mm -hmm. I think that requires a little bit of political education, maybe some, some ethics training uh, along with their science, but I think it's going to be necessary. And one of the things I would say, I, I agree completely, and I also say there are some scientists who don't want to or perhaps are not able to be involved in that, and that's okay, nor... Does anyone want to take their entire scientific career and throw it into that policy arena? Very few people do. So maybe it's you get involved a little bit or you are at least sensitive to it so that every one person has, has different ways of contributing. Not everybody has to become interested in societal issues. But yes, be at least aware of them. Okay, well, thanks so much, Margaret. I think that's uh, probably a good time to wrap up. This was a fascinating conversation. Listeners, you can listen to any of our uh, previous podcasts on the web at bmsis.org slash podcast. We'll see you next month for our next installment. Thanks for listening. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. 